This is The Guardian. Today, how a leader accused of war crimes engineered his way back onto the global stage. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. ونحن اليوم أمام فرصة تبدل الوضع الدولي الذي يتبدى بعالم متعدد الأخطاب كنتيجة لهيمنة الغرب Earlier this month, in the Saudi Arabian city of Jeddah, something happened that many who watched the Middle East closely thought they would never see. Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, a man accused of war crimes, of using chemical weapons and levelling his own cities to the ground, was welcomed back with open arms into the Arab League. The Guardian's Patrick Wintle was watching. It was an extraordinary moment. He arrived... uh in Jeddah, with the whole city um, especially turned out looking beautiful for him with the Assyrian flags and he was beaming, wearing his tie, looking very erect, strong and uh, he was greeted by uh, Mohammed bin Salman who first uh, hugged him and then shook his hands in front of the cameras and for all the world you wouldn't have known that these two men had been fighting each other as long as a decade uh, so it was an extraordinary uh, reversal and a sort of turning point in Middle East politics. Around the same time as that summit, I had a conversation with a woman living in the Lebanese capital, Beirut. We're going to call her Lena. She's from Syria, a refugee who fled Assad's war with her husband to Lebanon seven years ago. She told me her husband had been drafted into the Syrian army and he was watching his friends being killed around him while the city that Lena was living in was being bombed and shelled every day. She told me, simply, we ran from death. Life in Beirut wasn't easy, but Lena and her husband managed to start a family, get some work, and they felt relatively safe. And then... A few weeks ago, that started to change. Flyers started to appear in her neighbourhood, saying any Syrians in the country without the right papers had until the middle of June to get out. And if they didn't, the police would start going door to door looking for them. Lena asked me, do you have any idea what will happen? my husband goes back to Syria. He's an army deserter. He'll vanish. Nobody will tell us where he's gone. He could be executed, hanged. Lena's children are young, but she told me they're scared too. They know their dad's in trouble. And she tries to tell them not to worry, but the truth is, she does worry. She said she's heard of hundreds of people who have already been picked up and sent back to Syria. 
And when her husband leaves for work in the morning, every time he leaves the house, she wonders, is today the day he doesn't come back? Right now is a transformative moment in the Middle East. Old grudges are being put to bed. Former enemies are coming together to try to make a new start. For the leader of Syria, it's the beginning of an extraordinary political comeback. For millions of his people living across the region as refugees, it's one of their worst fears playing out. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the bloody triumph of Bashar al-Assad and what it means for the Syrian people. Patrick, Bashar al-Assad is the kind of leader you could argue has had more influence on global politics over the past decade than most. He was crucial to the rise of Islamic State. His conduct has helped fuel an anti-refugee backlash across Europe. And his survival has emboldened authoritarian leaders across the world. Where does Assad's story begin? How did he become the president of Syria? The, the intention had never been that he would be president. It was expected that Bashar, the, the oldest brother, would become president. And so he had actually um, developed a sort of ophthalmic practice somewhere in uh, West London, uh, where he was regarded as a kind of mild-mannered figure. He made very little point of saying that he was the son of the president of uh, Syria when he was um, dealing with his clients. And then his brother died in a car crash, or he was on the way to a skiing trip somewhere in um, Switzerland, and he smashed his um, Mercedes on the way to Damascus airport. And so suddenly the whole life of Bashar al-Assad was changed overnight because it was then clear he was going to be the successor. It's so incredible that he's this like almost accidental dictator, that his father, who ruled Syria ruthlessly for decades, actually preferred his older son to take over. But when he did finally come to power in the year 2000, how did Western governments view Assad? Well, I think there was a collective misreading of him, that he was a modernizer, that he wanted to change the Syrian economy, and it'd be worth trying to engage with him. And very soon after 9-11, when there was a need in the West to try to rally allies against the Taliban and against terrorism, uh, there was a decision made by Tony Blair that he would actually fly to Damascus and to meet with Assad. And he took quite a few journalists with him. And I was fortunate to be one of those. And it ended up in a disaster because we, we all drove out in a huge convoy and then we got there and they had their meeting and then there was a joint press conference. And at that joint press conference, Assad absolutely laid into the West and um, said that it was quite wrong that the West was bombing in Afghanistan, which had just started at that point. And it, it had emerged that there had been no meeting of minds whatsoever. There was a misreading of him at the start. And when you met him, Patrick, at that summit with Tony Blair in 2001, did you get any sense that this mild-mannered former ophthalmologist who used to live in London would go on to be this incredibly brutal and consequential leader? You could see that there was a steely glare about this man and that he was absolutely certain in his own mind about what he thought. And he had no compunction being incredibly rude to uh, his guest, Tony Blair, who was ineffectively humiliated at that press conference. 
um, any had any kid concerned him whatsoever. The world knows Assad best for an event that started in 2011, with protests spreading across the Arab world as part of what would become known as the Arab Spring. Tense new beginnings for Tunisia, its Arab neighbours nervous of how revolutionary feelings could spread. Those protests started spreading in Syria, becoming a nationwide, largely non-violent movement calling for reforms to Bashar al-Assad's regime. And then eventually for the toppling of his government. It's a huge story and we can't recap the entire thing, but Assad responded to those protests with incredible violence. A poison gas attack on a Syrian village on April 11th. Infants gasp for breath behind oxygen masks at this makeshift hospital. Other men suffocating... Conduct so shocking that nearly the whole world cut off diplomatic ties, including his neighbours, countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, who thought that what he was doing was so appalling that they actually expelled him from the Arab League in 2011. We are very sorry to have to take this decision, but after all of this time in which the killing has continued, we found ourselves compelled to do this. Those Syrian anti-government protests quickly gave way to an armed opposition movement and eventually a full-blown civil war that raged for nearly a decade. becoming a proxy war for powers across the region who poured in money and weapons. Patrick, for those who didn't follow that war closely, in a world that's full of horrible dictators, why is it that Bashar al-Assad is considered so uniquely despicable and reviled? There had been such high hopes at the time of the Arab Spring that the Syrian civil war was going to end with his downfall, and it was a spontaneous, largely non-military uprising by people who were just seeking democracy. And it was just simply the brutality with which this movement for liberation was crushed, I think, is unique. They're quite willing to absolutely destroy buildings and destroy neighborhoods to drive out oppositions. And the methods that were used, including barrel bombs, um, chemical weapons, just very cold-blooded uh, mass assassinations is is um, just beyond the pale. There, there were also just as many as 500,000 people were killed. The vast wow. majority of them were killed by Assad's forces. And about 100,000 people were disappeared into sort of Assad's dungeons, which were run by one of the most brutal secret polices in the Middle East has seen. The sense of opportunity and its loss it just makes him a uniquely reviled character. It was in that period of the war that Assad was reduced to just a handful of allies, including Iran and, more crucially, Russia. Vladimir Putin sent his own troops to Syria, and at a terrible human cost, they helped to defeat the opposition and keep Assad in power. But diplomatically, do you think he ever believed he might be able to return to the world stage? I think he knew he had enough certain support in the sense of what he had from Iran and from Russia. And that meant he could sit out what was going to be a very long process. And 
I also went to some of the talks that were held in Geneva under the UN auspices where the um, Syrian delegation, it was always unclear whether they're going to be willing even to turn up to the talks. I went to at least two or three rounds of these talks. And at the end, you, each time you came away thinking Assad has absolutely no intention of compromising you. They would go to the talks in Geneva, but actually give no ground whatsoever, or they'll say they'll come back later. But they were just playing a waiting game, and they sensed the military tide was edging and ebbing in their favour, and so they just had to hold on. Patrick, as of the beginning of this year, Assad had effectively won the war on the ground, although he presides over a completely broken country, parts of which are still controlled by opposition groups or foreign forces. But... I think we could say he also appears to be winning the diplomatic war. What's happened? Well, some Arab states have reopened diplomatic contacts in Damascus. And there's also sounds coming out from Saudi officials, Saudi foreign ministers, and some of whom you know, I met in London who wouldn't go into the full detail of how they were going to normalize relations with Assad, but clearly felt that was the direction of travel. They, they would say to me, look, nothing else has worked, so we're going to have to try something else. And also I think the, there's a bigger change going on inside Saudi foreign policy, and they realize that if they're going to really focus on the kind of modernization of uh, Saudi Arabia, they're going to have to really focus on their own domestic issues and to end some of the foreign policy adventurism. So you see not only them trying to produce a peace settlement in Yemen, but they actually strike a form of rapprochement with Iran, who have been their mortal enemies for 40 years. And the third leg of that is the decision to normalize relations with Syria. It's basically for domestic, practical, pragmatic reasons, in a sense that what they've tried with Syria before hasn't worked. One of the things that might be playing into the Arab world's thinking is unusually a drug called Captagon. Tell me about what that drug is and how it might have played a role in Assad being brought in from the cold. It's basically an amphetamine, which was a, I think it was a German drug originally, and um, it was manufactured to deal with depression. Uh, but then they discovered that it had a whole number of um, dreadful side effects and it was banned. Uh, but it's quite easy to make and basically it's amphetamines and caffeine and I think you can sell it for around $10 a pill. And it's now become a, uh, a sort of weapon of mass addiction, as it were, <laughs> throughout the Middle East, and it, particularly in Saudi Arabia and Jordan. And there's a real concern that a lot of Saudi youth, some of whom are unemployed or haven't got great job prospects, have become really addicted to this drug. And there's a lot of evidence that much of this drug is being manufactured in quite sort of easy to construct or pop up, pop down laboratories inside Syria, and that this drugs trade is being run by the Assad regime because they're very short of money, and this is a quick way of making a great deal of money. And this trade is actually being run by the Syrian government? Yeah, the, the allegation is that Assad's brother is basically the kingpin of this and that you should really view Syria as a sort of narco state wow. equivalent to sort of Colombia of uh, years back. Now, obviously, Assad absolutely denies any responsibility, denies there's anything of that kind going on, but he would do that. 
and he hasn't actually really given any absolute undertaking to anyone um, that he's going to close anything down because his his line is that there's nothing to close down. There's no, that we mm. we haven't got any laboratories. But the understanding is that if the Gulf states start and Iran start pouring money into a reconstruction of Syria, he will have less need to allow these laboratories to operate. The other factor that may have driven the Arab League to readmit the Syrian government is the presence of the nearly 6 million Syrian refugees living in countries like Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan. What could Assad's return to the Arab fold mean for those people, people like Lena, who we heard from earlier, and the millions of others who are stuck outside their country and fear going back? The worry is that there's going to be an enforced movement of the refugees, that they will be ordered back into Syria. And I think some of those who are known to the incredibly effective Syrian secret police will face a very brutal greeting. I mean, I think some of them will be, to be frank, will be killed. And it could become one of the most uh, horrific stories of the next two to three years, how these refugees are treated when they return to, or if they're forced to go back to, to Syria. Another of the people who I spoke to in Beirut was a woman called Dara, who's Syrian but grew up outside the country. She spent the past decade on the ground in Lebanon and Syria working with refugees. There are 1.5 million Syrian refugees living in Lebanon. That's nearly a quarter of the country's population by some estimates. We've altered Dara's voice for her safety, but she told me in the past few weeks the situation for Syrians in Lebanon has become really dire. In Lebanon, there are these waves of like xenophobia, of the voices being raised that Syrians should go back. This is not something new. But what has changed is Lebanon is at its breaking point. And whereas before it was a certain media outlet, now it's everyone. Like now you cannot sit in a taxi without the conversation starting. Like literally a part of humanity is is gone when we speak about the topic of Syrian refugees. And it's not just Lebanon, it's Lebanon, Turkey, Denmark. And I think because it feels from so many different countries that it even feels worse. What does this mean for the lives of average Syrians living in Lebanon? The fact that people in the country now feel like they're they're done with this community? Um, The amount of, of people in my network that have been evicted because they're Syrian and they've been paying rent. So when the landlords found out in one case, the friend was kicked out and told, I don't rent to Syrians. You are all children of whores. I'm sorry for using this graphic description, but literally that's what he was saying into my friend's face. I'm talking about Beirut. I'm talking about the Syrian community that has studied at university, that is working international jobs, whereas you have the communities that are completely relying on themselves in, in, in a refugee camp, in a settlement. And Dara, how has the threat of deportation, of being forcibly sent back to Syria, become much larger over the past few weeks? Now you have these mobile checkpoints where you have a row of police cars just literally stopping cars. They specifically target young men 
that ride motorbikes. Because most Syrians in Lebanon cannot afford a car. And um, when they do find uh, someone without the pa- especially if the papers are not right, this person will be arrested and detained in Lebanon uh, before then being passed uh, to uh, Masna border. The other thing that happened additionally to the checkpoints were actual army raids. There are buildings that are known to be with Syrian tenants. The army literally went and raided these specific buildings. What happens if people are caught by the police? I mean, what happens to those people? So previously, Syrians usually just were detained and then let go, and they receive an order for deportation, but then you just go underground. Like, you remain unnoticed, but you can still live normal life and move around. But now, officially, they say it's been 400 arrests and deportations back to Syria. But there are assumptions that it was actually up to 1,200 or 1,300 individuals that were arrested and deported back. The other thing that the people need to understand outside of Lebanon is there is so much harassment and so many obstacles that Syrians actually do decide to be like, what else can we do? So they call this the uh, voluntary return. But we all know that this is not voluntary. They are forced to return in order to to stop being harassed. So for people who are forced to go back to Syria, what kind of fate awaits them? What do they find on the other side of that border? Oftentimes the tension and disappearance for the army draft objectors, it will be a key, of course, a certain amount of, of detention before being forced to join the army. What they will not find is no stability, no livelihood, no services, no infrastructure, and no support whatsoever. There is an entire generation of children that don't get education. Uh, the, the poverty rates are insane. The prices, the salaries, the, the I cannot even understand how people think. It is a rational, reasonable thought to say, it's okay for Syrians to go back to their country. When you say that people who go back could be forcibly disappeared or else detained and forced to join the army again, have you heard examples of that happening to people, of, of them being forced to go back and just disappearing into the system? Yes, there has, been, there has been cases now, not from my direct surrounding, but someone who knows someone, yes. And um, there has been plenty of cases where there have been amnesty agreements between the Syrian regime and even European countries where Syrians decided to voluntarily return because the European asylum system made their lives so hard that they returned and these people have been disappeared. And we're talking about very well-known activists and uh, survivors of, of detention and torture that have been disappeared for a second time. Dara, what was the story of of that friend of a friend that you mentioned? What happened to that person? We spoke to the wife who is here in Lebanon still. So she was not arrested. Her husband was arrested, was detained in Lebanon, then sent over the border. And basically she hasn't spoken to him ever since. What I was told is that she's trying to collect some money to pay the bribes with the necessary authorities in Syria to find at least out where he is detained. That's the crazy thing. Like The Syrian detention system is such a massive monstrosity. 
that all these family members of detainees, oftentimes mothers or sisters or wives or daughters, spend a huge amount of money just to trying to figure out in which city is the person detained or in which prison. And oftentimes uh, they have to go through harassment and, and abuse or not even get the help they were promised after paying. Coming up, what message does the return of Bashar al-Assad send to the world? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Patrick, now that Assad is back in the Arab League, it's likely that financial and humanitarian aid is going to start flowing back into Syria from some of these Gulf states. Could we at least say that that money will improve the lives of Syrian people and possibly the lives of Syrian refugees who do return to the country? Like, is that at least a small silver lining in this story? Well, the problem with it is that it will be given the way he has behaved in the past and given the way he rewards those who are loyal to him. Uh, the reconstruction will be very partial and it will leave a large number of people out of any benefit from this. So there are still parts of the northeast and the northwest of Syria that he doesn't control. There are still American forces there. There are still Turkish forces there. And there are still Russian Russians there as well and many Iranians. So I don't see that this is suddenly going to become an integrated state and which is reconstructed. Uh, it's going to be a very partial, selective 
reconstruction. And I think, as has been the case over the last decade, some of Syrians will be excluded. What's striking about this whole story, Patrick, is you told me earlier that during the war, Assad believed that all he needed to do was hold on, stay in power, and eventually everybody would be forced to deal with him again. And I wonder, looking at what's happening now, was he right about that? Well, uh, he has been proven right so far in the sense of real politics. He's obviously not been proven right in the way, morally, the way he's conducted himself, but a mixture of kind of a best brute force, the kind of the foreign sponsorship he received and the kind of absence of international solidarity with the democratic movements in inside Syria has meant he's survived. Um, and I don't think he feels any need to change. One of the ramifications of Assad being welcomed back by the Arab world is that COP28 this year will be held in Dubai and Assad or Syrian government representatives will be there, will cross paths with leaders from all over the world. How awkward is that going to be, do you think? Well, I I know that um, diplomatic officials, both in London and and in some of the Gulf states, were very surprised that that invitation was made because it presents a real problem for Western powers. Are they going to have to shake hands with Assad? Because it's absolutely clear that the West doesn't think this is the moment to rehabilitate. There's even talk that some will feel they have to boycott the meeting or if he does turn up. And that would be obviously tragic because the issues at the meeting are so important. Do you think we'll ever see the West follow the path of the Arab states and just decide that everything they've tried so far to contain Syria has not worked? And so they may as well take the same route and, and try to offer Assad a way back into the international community at large? Not not at present. I don't think so. I think, if anything, there's been a hardening of the West position in this last few weeks about the rehabilitation. They're making it absolutely clear that they won't be willing to treat with him unless he accepts elections and other parts of previous UN resolutions that really require him to get into a partnership with um, the, the opposition forces. But in a way, it's all futile. It's, it, that's past. It's all gone. The, the, the opposition has been defeated. Patrick, just finally, 12 years ago when the Syrian war began, and at so many points during the war itself, it seemed impossible that Bashar al-Assad would ever be embraced on any kind of world stage again, and, and yet he has been. So what kind of message do you think this sends to other authoritarian leaders like him? Well, I think that's almost the, the, the worst aspect of, of this. There has been no accountability for what he's done. There's no accountability for all the people he's killed or for the use of chemical weapons. And the message is that if you can survive through brute force in the end, you won't have to pay or face the consequences. And as we all sit now discussing what should happen to Vladimir Putin if Russia should lose the war in Ukraine, it all seems... Like it's all feasible now, but the, is it not just as likely that Putin will be will survive? And hasn't that been the lesson for Putin that that force works? Dara, just finally, for you as a person working with Syrian refugees, as a Syrian woman. How does it feel for you to see Bashar al-Assad receiving a diplomatic welcome, being re-embraced by the Arab world? Like a 
spit and a slap and a kick in every person's face that has lost someone, that has lost their house, that has suffered from torture, detention or abuse, that had to leave their homes and move to other countries. I think it's it's an absolute disgrace. But I mean, if you look at that photo of the Arab League, how many of them are <laughs> not repressive authoritarians? Are we really surprised? I, I really lost hope or faith in real solidarity. And we are in a really dark moment of history for Syrians. That was a refugee advocate who works with Syrians in Lebanon called Dara. Thank you very much to her. And also to Lena, a Syrian woman who spoke to us from Beirut. And also to our diplomatic editor, Patrick Wintour. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Ktena and Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Homer Khalili. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.